0: If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 40 through 52 this morning as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Luke. Now I know nobody wants to answer this question honestly, but have you ever left one of your kids somewhere? Church, school, happens here quite often, you may be surprised ball game, grocery store. Now, Mother's Day, that sounds like a crazy question, doesn't it? Nobody wants to admit on Mother's Day that you've left your kid somewhere. I also know that since we've had parent-child dedication this morning and all of these first-time parents have stood up before you, they can't even begin to fathom or imagine leaving their child, their precious little child somewhere. But as many of you who, who have had kids and um, especially those who have had multiple kids would tell you, it can happen. It can certainly happen. You'd be surprised how many people, like I said, leave their kids here where one parent, you know, you bring two cars, one parent thinks that the kid's with the other, the other parent thinks the kid's with them. Next thing you know, you're driving down 98 and your phone's ringing and it's me going, hey, you got a kid here. It happens. In today's text, we're provided a story about a time when Mary and Joseph left their son Jesus, the Son of God, left Him behind in Jerusalem following the festival of Passover. They not only left Jesus behind, but it took uh, it it a day to figure it out, and then three days total before they actually found Him. yet within this, this event, there's a lot that transpires that the Lord has given us. There's a lot about the nature of Jesus and who Jesus is. The two natures of Christ, which is His divinity and His humanity together in the same person, perfectly united, that we get a glimpse of. We also see some things that provide us with an example to follow, but this event also does well in demonstrating for us our great need of a Savior. This text has been debated for centuries as it relates to how Jesus can be and exist as fully God and fully man. On our Wednesday night Bible studies, we've been studying the history of Christianity. You're all invited to that, by the way, our Wednesday night adult Bible study at 6.30. And we recently considered four councils from the 4th and 5th centuries that convened for the sole purpose of debating and understanding how the divinity and humanity of Jesus can exist in the same person. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? And there's so much that we can learn about this from the boy Jesus, and I hope that we learn that today. And I pray that the Spirit uses this text this morning to teach us about the mystery and the wonder of what God has done through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in taking on flesh. And I hope that that mystery and I hope that that wonder and the magnitude of what is happening in the person of Jesus spurs us on by the power of the Spirit to follow in the ways in which we will consider in just a moment. And this morning on the Lord's Day and on Mother's Day, I pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of His Word and that the Spirit would use it as a mighty way in our lives. So if you are able, in honor of the reading of God's Word, will you stand... I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 40 through chapter 2, verse 52. And the child grew, child being Jesus, and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Then Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, as we approach your holy word, God, I pray that through your spirit we would learn about our Savior Jesus. We would learn and, uh, of how you took on flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, took on flesh in Christ. That we would marvel at this great mystery, and that his example, even as a 12 year old, his example would spur us on to follow it, and that we would rejoice in our Messiah, our great Savior. God bless the preaching of Your Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So let me begin by setting the stage for what is going on and briefly summarize this section before I make some observations from this text. You see, with verses 40 and 52 being used as the bookends around the account of Jesus' visit to the temple, Luke seems concerned with communicating to the reader that as a boy, Jesus continued to grow in knowledge and wisdom. And in comparison to the account of John the Baptist's growth in, in chapter 1, verse 80, which contains a twofold description of John, that he grew and became strong in spirit. Verse 40 gives a fourfold description of Jesus. He grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And so this again shows us that Jesus was greater than John the Baptist. Last week we looked at Jesus' presentation in the temple when he was roughly 41 days old. But then from last week to this week, we have this gap of about 12 years to where Jesus was an infant in the temple last week. Fast forward, we see him now as a 12-year-old boy. And then after that, we have another gap from 12 years to roughly age 30 when he began his ministry, as we will see in the coming weeks. And so the first few chapter, the first two chapters of Luke, are the only access that we have to the nature of Jesus' childhood. Luke's passages give us some great insight into Jesus as a young boy that should assist in shaping our understanding of who Jesus was as a human. Now, I know that other attempts have been made to capture the childhood of Jesus in the Gnostic or Apocryphal Gospels, but those are inaccurate accounts that haven't been accepted as closed canon scripture for the last 2,000 years. And so while we might be tempted to think of Jesus as a boy, as this like small but yet fully formed adult in a small body, he is Jesus, the passage before us gives us a different picture. From this passage, we can gather that Jesus lived in His hometown of Nazareth, that Jesus obeyed His parents, and that He grew physically like any normal young person would. Jesus was filled with wisdom as a child, we're told, in 39 and 40, but He also continued to grow in wisdom as time passed, we see in verse 52. And then in verses 41 through 51, Luke relays one particular episode from Jesus's early life that we're considering this morning so let me set the stage for this forgotten jesus in the temple luke tells us that when the time was finished for the celebration of passover the people who had traveled many miles as pilgrims returned to their homes now, as we see again later in Jesus' life, it was custom of many Jews to come into Jerusalem upon the, to, to descend upon the city to celebrate the Passover feast. Something Luke tells us was an annual trip for Joseph and his family. And the custom of the day was for people to travel in caravans, which is why he says there were other family members and other acquaintances that were there. This caravan would include uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors from the village, neighbors from nearby villages, etc. It was easier and safer to travel as a group when making a pilgrimage such as this. And so typically in these caravans, just to give you a little insight on how this could happen to where Jesus was left in Jerusalem, typically in these caravans, the women and the children walked in front. And then in the back would be the men and the older boys, if you will. And so Jesus was on the threshold at 12 years old. He was on this threshold between being a child and being a young man. As the Jewish culture deemed age 13, when a Jewish young man becomes responsible for his own actions, he becomes a bar mitzvah, if you know of that terminology, which means son of the commandment. And then he undergoes a ceremony to mark that occasion, which we know modern day is called a bar mitzvah. And so since Jesus is on the threshold of manhood, it is safe to assume that on this occasion, very much like I described in the opening uh, illustration, introduction, whenever you leave your kids at church, on this occasion, with the children in front of the caravan, Mary would have assumed that Jesus was at the back of the caravan with Joseph because she realized he certainly wasn't with her. Well, he must be with his father at the back. And in like manner, in all probability, Joseph, being at the back of the caravan with the other men and the young men, noticed that Jesus wasn't with him, so well, he must be at the front with his mother. And the details of this story, again, might seem eerily familiar to some of you. And then many parents, if you found yourself in a situation like this, you know the panic of realizing that your child has gone missing in a crowded place. Take them when they're this tall to like the mall or something. They're going to run away, right? And so you can imagine then, once Mary and Joseph figure out, well, he's not with me, well, he's not with you, well, where is he? You can imagine the conversation that's taking place because you've been there. Well, I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was with you. And if you're married, I'm sure you can imagine exactly how this conversation went. That's all I'm going to say about that. Joseph and Mary were humans just like we are. And so as they searched for him among his family and friends, their anxiety must have grown intense. And you, again, you, you, some of you know the feeling of this. It is a terrifying thing. And what's even more terrifying is this is the first century here, guys. This isn't the 21st century. They couldn't pick up the cell phone, dial the Jerusalem police department, and put a bolo out on Jesus. They were a day's journey already away from Jerusalem. Having, having traveled so far, they had to turn around and go back. Then, following what must have been a harrowing three-day search, they finally found the boy in the temple courts, listening to and questioning the religious scholars who were teaching there. Jesus, apparently oblivious to and uninterested in the frantic search that had been underway. And so as we get into the meat of this exchange between Jesus and his parents along with the reactions from the teachers to Jesus' wisdom and knowledge, I want to make some observations from this text that help clarify and challenge us as we seek to follow the example of Christ and knowing Him as Savior. And my first observation relates to the example of Mary and Joseph. Christian parents commit their families to Christ and to the local church. Christian parents commit their families to Christ and the local church. Today is Mother's Day. And we also had parent-child dedication, as you know. And if there's one thing I know of every Christian mother, it is certainly that they share the common desire to see their children love and follow Jesus, and to see their children commit to a local faith family. Last week, for all, of those par- last week for all these parents that stood before you this morning vowing to raise their children to love and follow Jesus within this faith family. We had a class that they all attended where we talked about this very thing. About Christian parents obeying Scripture in raising their families to love and follow Jesus and committing themselves to a local faith family in the local church. We talked about how this is the biblical mandate for Christians as they raise their families. And as we saw last week, Joseph and Mary were righteous parents. In circumcising Jesus, in bringing Him to be presented in the temple, carrying out the rite of purification as specified in the law in Leviticus chapter 12, and as Luke tells us in verse 39, performing all that the law required of them, Joseph and Mary demonstrated their devotion to Yahweh as law-abiding Jews. Now having demonstrated their righteousness in keeping the law, they have also demonstrated their religious devotion. You see, Jesus is now 12 years old. And as verse 41 tells us, Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And so for t- the past 12 years, we can assume that Jesus' parents have taken Him on this annual pilgrimage to worship during Passover. Passover. And having lost Jesus, they find Him sitting exactly where they always took Him, the temple. And in His response, Jesus tells them, why wouldn't I be here? Why wouldn't I be here? This is where we come. When we come to Jerusalem, we come to worship Yahweh. We come to the temple. And so there is a sense in which we get the impression that Jesus had been there so many times on these pilgrimages that it's a natural instinct for Him to be in the temple. Why? Because Joseph and Mary raised Him there. Joseph and Mary were righteous parents and they were devoted parents to Yahweh. There is much that you and I can learn from Joseph and Mary. We live in a time When it is normal and expected for our children's desires and our children's extracurriculars to take precedence over their spiritual development and devotion to the church. Too many parents give their kids options when it comes to whether or not they will gather with the people of God on Sundays, attend other gatherings or camps that are focused on their spiritual development or anything else in between. Too many parents concede when their kids tell them on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights for youth group, well, I don't want to go. Too many parents prioritize travel sports or travel everything. Everything's travel these days. At the expense of their kids' spiritual well-being. But I think it's important that we be very clear this morning as we consider the example of Mary and Joseph. Christian parents commit themselves and their families to the local church and the spiritual development of both parent and child. Parents, first, how will your kids prioritize the things of God if they do not see you prioritize the things of God? And I know this may sound harsh, but I'm a parent too. I have to prioritize these very things in my own home too. So I'm not innocent of this. And how will our kids prioritize the things of God if we constantly make their own spiritual development and commitment to Christ's church an option or second to everything else. You hear this all the time, but we say this and you hear this because it is a reality for so many churches in our culture. And I know I sound like an old man when I say this, and I feel like an old man every day when I wake up, but it is entirely true, and hear this, If you will not disciple your children and teach them to prioritize their relationship with Christ and their relationship with His church, then the world will disciple them. It's reality. It's true. It's true. And you know what message the world's peddling, don't you? We do. So parents, in a challenging word on this Mother's Day, you must make the choice. And let me say this. Again, as I mentioned, I'm the parent of three children. I understand very well the desire to give our kids everything they want. The desire to want our kids to go with whatever they desire that will make them happy. I understand that pull. It's real. But as Christians and as parents, we know what is best for our children, and that is their spiritual development. And telling our kids, no, will not damage them for the rest of their lives, but it will help them. Parents, church, we're in this battle together, and I want to encourage you to kick back against the grain of our modern, modern parenting culture that says it's acceptable and follow the Lord's command for parenting, not our cultures. And I understand there's you know a whole host of complexities that may be added to this, but Scripture remains the same and true let's labor alongside of each other, church family, to fight for our kids and for the spiritual well-being of our kids. We made that commitment to three families here this morning. But it begins with us, parents. If we give them the option, our kids the option, between their spiritual well-being and everything else, we're already losing the game. Christian parents commit themselves and their faith families to the church. That's the example of Mary and Joseph. second observation. Jesus' identity and our identity. Jesus' identity and our identity. Look at verse 47. Or look at 46. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So once Mary and Joseph find Jesus, she rebukes him. And she tells Jesus that his father, meaning Joseph, and she had been searching for him. And in response to this, Jesus seizes the moment. And Jesus mentions his earthly and adoptive father in order to remind Mary that his true father is in heaven, Yahweh. But before we consider this, I want to make one mention. I want to make mention of one thing. We may read this story, and we may not, I don't know. I, maybe it's just me. But we may read this story considering that Jesus stayed behind in the temple, was left by his parents, and then had this exchange with his mother. We may read this story, and if we put ourselves in Jesus' shoes and being left somewhere may not be hard for us to to imagine, as I've mentioned, but when our parents found us, after being elated that we were found, we can probably imagine the mother then getting onto us pretty heavily, right? Where were you at? Why didn't you come with us? What were you thinking? Which may lead us to think that we were in some type of trouble for disobeying our parent, for being left behind. And if we're not careful, when we read this passage, we may think the same thing about Jesus. Well, Jesus was disrespectful to his mother in how he responded to her. Or Jesus was disobedient to his parents for he stayed behind and was left in Jerusalem because he didn't listen and get in the caravan when he was told to. And so we got to be really, really careful when we read this passage because it would be easy for us to read it through our own lens. And in reading it through our own lens, we might perceive that Jesus sinned or that His response was sinful. But lest we fall into that trap, let me remind you, and you all know this, I hope, let's remember that Jesus is sinless. We see a clear depiction within this passage of the two natures of Christ, His divinity and His humanity. Jesus is the God-man, which means He possesses full humanity and full divinity. And Jesus' divinity and His humanity are in perfect union with one another. Your theological term for today is hypostatic union. That's what this means. That's what this is called. They're not divided. His humanity and divinity are not divided within one person. They are perfectly united. They're not against one another, but perfectly residing within the person of Jesus Christ. Full humanity and full divinity. And as I mentioned earlier, we've wrestled with this on our Wednesday nights in the history of Christianity. Now, we don't have time to delve into all the details about the union of divinity and humanity, and and quite honestly, uh, it may just put you to sleep, some of you. But we see Jesus' humanity on clear display here in this account, as he is growing in wisdom and stature. But we also see his divinity on full display in his response to Mary. Why would you not think that I would be in my father's house? I have to be in my father's house. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But my point is still this: We need to make be extremely clear that if this exchange, that in this exchange and in this change, chain of events, Jesus is not guilty of any sin. As the God man, Jesus lived a fully sinless life. That means even as a child. Jesus never sinned. He never disobeyed his parents. He never disrespected his parents. Luke does not give any indication of this, and the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus is indeed sinless, which makes him our perfect Savior. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so I just wanted to clear the deck as we approach this story and let everybody know that Jesus did not sin in this account. There is no indication of that, and if he did sin, he would cease to be God, which we know that he is. But what we do know is that Jesus was growing in his understanding of his own identity. Now, there's questions asked all the time. When did Jesus know he was the Son of God? When did Jesus know that he was who he was? Well, that's all speculation up until age 12. We know at age 12, as Jesus sits in the temple, we have indication that Jesus is coming into understanding of who he is, who God is, and what his relation is to the Father as the Son, God the Son. And so when Jesus responds to his mother Mary during this exchange, he's not responding flippantly, he's not responding disrespectfully, but he is responding in a way that gives testimony to the fact that he is coming to grips with who he is and a response that would indicate the same thing for Joseph and Mary. Oh, he gets it. He's starting to get it. Which I'm sure opens up a whole new realm of parenting questions for them. Can you imagine? He knows He's the Son of God. What must we do? My translation of the Scriptures here in the ESV read, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? But some other translations say, I know the King James does, I must be about my Father's business. And so regardless of the translation, the fact remains the same. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to do the will of God. And He has actually been in His Father's house doing His Father's will for the entire duration of their search. And so as Jesus is coming to grips with His identity as the Son of God, submitting to the will of the Father, and eager to learn and understand the Scriptures, it brings to mind our own identity in Christ. Galatians 4, 4-7 But when the fullness of time had come, And so church, for those who have trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord through Christ, the Son of God, as Jesus understands His identity at 12 years old as the Son of God, through Christ, the Son of God, we are made sons and daughters of God. It is then our identity. When we repent of our sins and when we trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, we are a new creation and we receive a new identity. Your past no longer defines you. It is Christ who defines you as son and daughter. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are sons and daughters of righteousness. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And just as Christ grew in His understanding of His identity, the more we seek the Lord, the more we read His Scriptures, the more we come to grips with what it means to be a son and daughter of God, the more we grow in our own understanding of our identity. We're not slaves to sin. We are no longer now under condemnation. There is no wrath that remains upon us. There is nothing but grace, mercy, and love poured out upon us from our loving Father as we've entered into this familiar relationship with Him. Familiar relationship with Him through Christ. We are heirs with Christ to inherit an eternal inheritance that Christ is guarding for us that He will give to us if this is indeed our identity, if we've turned from our sin and trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, if we've turned to the Son of God in faith and become sons and daughters of God, then our new identity has new desires. Our new identity has new wants, those of which are the same as Christ's. Well, what are Christ's desires? What are His wants? We've just seen them. As a son and daughter of God, just as Jesus, the Son of God, was concerned with accomplishing and finding joy and fulfilling the Father's will, so too we, sons and daughters of God, share this same desire. As Christians, we desire to fulfill the Father's will. Well, what is the Father's will? It's that we love God and love others. We love God with our whole being and we share that with others. Jesus says to love God with all that you are. That goes beyond just lip service. That goes beyond just one day a week at church on Sundays. That is full commitment to Him. It's a total reorientation of wants and desires as the Spirit works within us. And then you love others as yourself. Love God, love others, and humbly seek Him through the Scriptures. Third observation. Jesus is an example in His love for the Scriptures and in submission. This is the way in which Jesus is fulfilling the Father's will in this moment that serves as an example to us to follow as those who are also sons and daughters of God. As Jesus comes to grips with the reality of who He is, Yahweh's Son, God in the flesh, there are some fascinating things here that we see that are an example to us as sons and daughters of God. Jesus' submission to His Father's will is a wonderful example for you and I as Christians. Though Jesus' relationship with His Father is unique, those who belong to Jesus, again, become sons and daughters of God in a very real way. And so if Jesus' status as the Son of God came with a strong awareness of the will of God, it must be that Jesus' followers will share the same passions as well. If Jesus was zealous to understand the will of God through the Word of God, we ought to to share that zeal. And so we see in this text that Jesus was passionate about the Scriptures even as a young man. He's sitting with the teachers. He's sitting with the PhDs, the theology professors, the one who are experts in the law, and He's listening to them and He's questioning them. And they are fascinated at at His answers. I can't say it. Think about that, twelve year old just fascinated. So we see within this text that Jesus was passionate about the scriptures. As a faithful Jewish family, Jesus' twelfth year was the final year of preparation before he entered into full participation in the religious life of the synagogue at age 13. And up to this point, as a devout Jewish family, Jesus would have been teaching Joseph, excuse me, would have been teaching Jesus the commandments of the law. Jesus had a love for the Scriptures even at a young age. His wisdom and insight was astonishing even at a young age because He knew and He loved the law. As He listened and questioned these teachers, His own understanding and His own answers surpassed those that could have been expected of someone His age. And we can imagine that Joseph was diligently teaching, Deuteronomy 6, teaching the law to Jesus. So what we can gather from these verses is that Jesus obediently submits to God's purpose in His life as He fulfills His Father's will for His life. And the young Jesus also had the desire to understand the Scriptures. He's glad to be in His Father's house learning more about His Father's purpose from His Father's Word. Further, as the Son of God Jesus desired to learn and understand, not just hear, not just know, learn and understand the Scriptures. And so Jesus sets this example for us as Christians to follow. As sons and daughters of God, we must be concerned to learn and understand the Scriptures. You see, one of the greatest problems among Christians today, and you you would all affirm this, I'm sure, one of the greatest problems for Christians, is biblical illiteracy. Christians don't know the Bible. They don't know their Bibles. And a lot of it is, you know, Christians don't know their Bibles because they don't read their Bibles. They don't know their Bibles because they don't necessarily hear it taught, maybe, in certain context. And part of this is because Christians haven't developed the discipline of reading the Bible and studying the Bible. We've become so consumed with other things that even spending five minutes in the Scriptures feels like a tremendous burden for us. This means we've lost sight of our identity, of who we are in Christ and what the Scriptures actually are. We've lost sight that we are sons and daughters of God. We've been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ. And this was not our own doing, but it was a gift from God so that no man may boast. And if this is the case, if this is who we are, if we are those free from condemnation, then why would we not want to know this God who has redeemed us? Well, how do we know God? His Word. His revelation of Himself to us. Going back to parenting for a second, Joseph again would have been ensuring that Jesus knew the Scriptures. That He was teaching His children the ways of God. And so parents, it's imperative that we know the word if we're going to teach it to our children. And so the question before us: How do we expect our kids to know the word if we don't know the word? Do we spend time in the scriptures? We must develop and this discipline within our lives to spend time in the scriptures. Do you approach the scripture with a posture of a learner? Someone who wants to know the Lord. Someone who wants to grow in our knowledge and love for Him. These are the marks of the Son of God, Jesus, and we're to follow in His example. But we also see Jesus give us an example of submission. As the scene closes, we're told that Jesus left with His parents to return home and was submissive to them. We see in verse 51. And as one author recognizes, it is significant that Jesus did not use His relationship with His Father as an excuse to rebel against His earthly parents. But instead, He was submissive to them. Think about it. If there was ever a child that can make a solid case for not listening to His parents, surely it was Jesus. But even as He tenderly reminds His earthly parents that His true Father is Yahweh, He does not use this occasion as a means to assert His own will. Though He is worthy of all honor and worship, Jesus submitted to the authorities that His Father had placed in His life. This is an important way that followers of Christ can stand as a witness against the prevailing attitudes of our culture. We live in an anti-authoritarian age here. No authority. Respect and submission are not values that our culture elevates, nor do they teach. What abounds is distrust and suspicion. And to be fair, much of this is because authority figures have failed in many regards. Too often, earthly authority is abused by those who possess authority over us, who use it for their own selfish gain. But in addition, the pride of our own hearts inclines us to believe that we generally know better than those whom God has placed over us. This leads us to respond in disgust to the idea of others telling us what to do. Remember though, That the authorities that Jesus submitted to, in this case were His parents, were no less sinful and fallible than those in our own day. And unlike you and I, the perfect Son of God always knew what was best. Yet, even though Jesus was subjecting Himself to fallible authority figures, He still was submissive. He understood that submission to the authorities in this life, limited and fallible though they were, was a way of submitting to His heavenly Father. Surely we must do the same. Christians must understand and speak and live in the knowledge that while authority is often abused in a fallen world, it is fundamentally a gift from God, Scripture tells us. But is Jesus merely an example? Fourth observation, Jesus is both an example and our Savior. You see, the problem for us is that we're not Jesus. We're not like Jesus. Our nature is sinful. Jesus' was not. We do not respond perfectly like Jesus responds. We don't always delight in doing the will of our Heavenly Father, do we? We often long to be free from God's will, imagining that we know what is best for us in order to secure our own joy and our own happiness. Christians are sometimes the worst offenders When it comes to disrespect for God given authority, both in the church and in the secular culture. And so, Jesus' example helps us by correcting our behavior and demonstrating what we should do. But at the end of the day, Jesus' example condemns us. When we see Jesus' example, we see that we're not righteous in and of ourselves. And if we're to be righteous, it must come from something outside of us. And so while Luke 2.51 may seem like an insignificant aside, in reality the entirety of our salvation depends on it. And if Jesus had not been obedient to His parents, He would not be perfectly holy and could not be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. If He were not the obedient child that you and I should have been, He would not possess a righteousness that He is able to give to those who trust Him. But he did. And so one thing, uh, last thing I want you to notice, I know I've been going long here, guys, and I apologize. There was so much in this passage, it was hard just to like pinpoint one thing. As many of you are familiar with Luke's narrative, we can see, even here, the shadow of the cross. Jesus would perfectly submit to and obey the Father's will, which would what? eventually lead him to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus' desire for his Father's will to come to fruition. Even in one of the darkest moments in Jesus' life, as he agonized at the thought of taking on the wrath of his Father on the cross, as he sweated drops of blood, Jesus said, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus obeyed and submitted Himself to the will of His Heavenly Father even when that decision meant that He would go to the cross and suffer and die on behalf of the sins of His people. Only in this way could forgiveness be made available to rebellious people. Jesus submitted to the Father's will. And the Father's will was that He should die for all of the ways that His people had sinned against Him. Including our unrighteousness distrust and lack of submission in so many ways. So today, church, will you submit to Jesus? If you haven't submitted to Him as your Savior and Lord, I ask you to repent of your sin this morning, to receive true joy and true life through His salvation. Maybe you're born again, but you've recognized some shortcomings in your parenting. You need to follow the example of Mary and Joseph and diligently teach your kids the Word and obey the Word in raising them among the people of God. I ask you to repent and submit to Him in that way. Maybe you haven't been consistent in your Scripture readings, in your submission to the Word, in your discipline of reading the Scriptures. Repent and submit to His will for your life. This morning, submit to the Spirit and be led by Him. Would you pray with me?